Well, this morning's uh, sermon text is from Psalm 16. We are, uh, we're, we're in between uh, sermon series right now. Dan preached for us last week. He'll preach again for us next week. And then uh, we'll, uh, we'll begin a, a, a series, Teach, teach Us to Pray. Uh, as we'll walk through the, the Lord's Prayer together as that, that central teaching of Jesus that, that we know we say it every week, and yet it's always fruitful to, to go through it and meditate upon uh, the way that Jesus has taught his disciples to pray. Uh, but in the meantime, I needed to, to fill one week, and, and if you know me, I'm probably going to pick a psalm. Uh, this is one of those books that I certainly, uh, if I had to pick just a couple of books from the Bible, this, this, these are prayers for us and, and always so valuable to, uh, to meditate upon. And so Psalm 16 is what we will spend time uh, looking at today. And so uh, beginning at, at verse 1, let us give our careful attention to the reading of God's word. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another god shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel and in the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. And at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. This has been the reading of God's word. Please be seated. Have any of you ever heard of the happiness index? The happiness index is a tool that is used by the United Nations to assess the average level of contentedness of any given nation. So it compares one nation using certain data and, and metrics with another nation and it comes up with, with who is the, the happiest country and, and who is the, the least happy, who is the most discontent uh, nation in the world. It's a survey that basically gets to this question, how happy are you? And so every year, the UN publishes a list of the happiest nations in the world. 2022's list has already been published. And you know, here in the United States, we, we live in what is arguably the most affluent country in the history of the world. We have uh, what, I, what I think is probably, just historically speaking, the strongest military that's ever been able to protect its citizenry. Uh, we enjoy political freedoms that people in the rest of the world, or some people in the rest of the world, can really only dream of and imagine. And so if you could maybe guess uh, where the United States falls on this happiness index, where would you have us? Top 10, right? Top 20. Well, barely. Barely. We do scrape into the top 20, where we've sat at number 19 for the last few years. We are the 19th happiest country in the world. Now, do you at all find this baffling? Do, do, you, do you think that as a country we would be happier? Well, maybe I don't think it's baffling uh, 
isolated, as an isolated in, uh, instance, but let's take a look at the 11th happiest country in the world, which is the country of Israel. How in the world do you live in a society that always lives, whether you are Jewish or Palestinian, you are always living with a pretty constant threat? Very little peace is known in Israel. And yet they're 11th in the world's happiest countries. Uh, Costa Rica comes in three places ahead of us in 16th place. In Costa Rica, the average income is less than one-third of what ours is, and yet they are, according to this index, a little happier than us. Now, how much can you read into this happiness index? I don't know. I'm probably a little bit skeptical, uh, but maybe the point that I'm trying to draw out through, I think, which is just a, an interesting little anecdote here, is how hard it is to grasp the concepts of what it means to be content. How hard it is to maybe grasp what it means to be a people who are happy. But I do know that it's something that we're all looking for. It's something that we're all striving for. We're looking for peace. We're looking for our hearts to be satisfied. Uh, we know this, right? And I think that's what makes Psalm 16 such essential reading. is because this is basically what King David is getting at. Where do we find peace? Where do we find contentment? And so we'll spend some time this morning taking a look at this psalm by King David. Uh, just a couple of points for us to consider. I, I hope these points resonate because I think even if we don't ask him in these words, it's, we're after it. We're on the hunt. Why is contentment so hard to find? Big assumption. We all agree with that premise, but I'm going to go with it. Why is contentment so hard to find? And then secondly, where is true contentment found? All right, so here's the problem, right? This is a setup. This is the setup for really where Psalm 16 meets us. Why is contentment so hard to find? Why is contentment, happiness, peace, satisfaction so elusive for us? Well, on the one hand, this I think this is where, where David is going to allude to, contentment is hard to find when there are too many options swirling around us. When we're surrounded by voices crying out, I can satisfy you. No, I can satisfy you. need this. And we often believe them. There are too many places where we are seeking to have our hearts satisfied. And so take a look at verse 4. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. It's very evocative, isn't it? Those who run after another God. I think we know what it is to be those who can run after another God, and we know what it is to have our sorrows compounded. Now, of course, remember the context in which David is writing. Uh, he is surrounded by nations that worshipped other gods. So if you go through your Old Testament, you, you see the god of the Philistines, Dagon, or you see one of the gods of the Moabites, uh, Chemosh, or you see Baal and Asherah, the gods of the Canaanites, or the sun god of Egypt. And so basically, back in this historical context, you have an ancient Hebrew man or woman, and they are surrounded surrounded by the temptations to worship the gods of their neighbors. Read through books like, like 1 and 2 Kings or 1 and 2 Chronicles, and what's remarkable is that even the best kings, the kings that walk after David, the kings who have reinstituted worship, they're typically good at, at getting rid of all of the pagan riffraff inside the temple, right? Because that's egregious, that's heinous, but they never get rid of the high places, which are basically places outside of the community where Israelites would go and worship pagan gods. 
Maybe I would have a more abundant harvest if I worshiped this God. Maybe I would have more children if I worshiped this God. Maybe I would be more content if I ran after another God. It's good to keep our options open. This is the conveyor belt model. We're the ones on the conveyor belt looking to get off. Where will we find contentment and satisfaction? I mentioned earlier Martin Luther's idea of a God, which, which we really, as, as Protestants, we've worked with now for 500 years. It's so good. A God means that which we are to expect all good and to which we are to take refuge in all distress. Where do we find our good? Where do we seek refuge? How much do we feel this pull to find our good elsewhere, to find our refuge in things other than the Lord? And so we can abandon the worship of God and we indulge in materialism. That that is a God that has quite the pull in our world, doesn't it? I I don't think there are any of us in this room that just have no relationship to, to materialism. Uh, maybe we, we've all sat with people and said, I want your nice things. Maybe then I would be happy. Even if that's irrational, we, we, we go under that uh, assumption. I just need more stuff. Then I would be more content. If only I had these things. If only I had this lifestyle, I would know contentment. We can put all of our hope and identity in our work, in, in our schooling. And so we know what it is to run after the gods of success and power and wealth. And, and, and boy, are those gods tempting. We know what it is to run after them. We can run after other gods that say the most important thing is to be true to yourself and express that identity. And we know what it is to say, man, that does sound good. That does sound like this kind of individual, personal happiness that I can chase. But David says, well, the sorrows of those who run after those other gods, they will multiply. And again, if we're honest, I think we know what that feels like. Not just theoretically, but personally. And so at least to some extent, our discontent arises because we are just pulled in so many different directions. We're on the conveyor belt, and we're looking, we have whiplash, looking at all of the different options that are beckoning in us, that, that say, I will satisfy you. It's so hard to be happy in a job if we're constantly thinking, is this the right choice? Maybe I should have done something different. Why did I pick this career? It's hard to work on a marriage that maybe is going through a rocky period when there are plenty of men and women out there who maybe you would think, I would be happier with them. Maybe I don't want to join this church because who knows if it's the right one. I just keep accruing things because I haven't found what I'm looking for yet. Those who run after other gods will suffer more and more. We know this. We live this. And so discontentedness, at least first of all, it arises out of this chaos of a multitude of choices offering to satisfy us. A second reason is maybe the flip side of this. And and I'm going to read between the lines of David here. And and so I think the second reason of, of discontentedness is not that we're on this conveyor belt of options, but we feel life is a straitjacket. And so we're stuck wishing that we had something different because we feel so stuck. How often do we wish things were different? If only I had this, if only I could be this, it would be so much better. And again, I'm reading between the lines, maybe pun intended, of verse 6. You'll see why it's a pun. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. Now these lines are boundary lines. 
So when the Israelites come into the promised land, each tribe was assigned its area, its portion of land. These are probably those parts of the Bible that can be a little bit hard to get through. We have all of the tribes getting the land that has been apportioned to them. But whatever portion of land was assigned to your tribe, basically your extended family, that would be your home for generations to come. And so if you were an ancient guy from the tribe of Dan, you knew where you were going to live and where your children were going to live and where they were going to live. You knew where you would be born, where you would die. It was against the law of Moses to move the boundary stones. Even monarchs, even kings were called to be content with their ancestral lands. They were not to take land from others. And so can you imagine living like this? In many ways, it's hard for us to imagine living like this. Now, of course, in our passage, David gives thanks. He's, he's filled with gratitude for his boundary lines. But how often do we feel them as restricting our ability to find peace and happiness? And so here's this paradox that we feel far heavier than David felt. This is a paradox that we feel far heavier uh, than, than David's countrymen felt. We are given this burden to craft an identity and find satisfaction, but we also have boundary lines. Now, we live in a world that, that doesn't want to think we have boundary lines, but we do. You didn't get to decide where you were born. You didn't get to decide the color of your skin, your body shape, your sex, your family. You didn't get to choose your facial features. When I was about 12 or 13, you asked me, Robert, what do you want to be when you grow up? You know, I, I would have said I want to be a basketball player. I was this height when I was 13. And then what happened? Like everybody kept growing. That wasn't going to happen. I didn't get to choose. I didn't get to choose. I was born in Long Beach, California. Uh, the, 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 the version of me that, that was born in, in Mumbai. We're different, aren't we? Now there's so much we don't pick. We don't get to choose the way our brains work. And yet, how much of our modern world is trying to overcome these boundary lines? If you take a generous creator out of the picture, you exchange a life that is to be received to basically a life that must be overcome in order to live out and express who I really think I am. What a burden. What bondage. And so we can study our way out. We can work our way out. We have scary technology that offers to satisfy our hearts, or at least it offers to satisfy our hearts, when we're dissatisfied with our bodies. But there are limits. Craziest thing we tell our kids in this society is you can be whoever you want to be. Nope. My parents were wise to say, move on from basketball. No, that's not right. We live in a society, our culture says to us that you have the right to define yourself. We're told you are free to be whoever you want to be, and it crushes us. If you saw in your bulletins, like I quoted from the great philosopher Taylor Swift, the singer. This is a quote she gave just a couple of weeks ago at a commencement address to the graduates of NYU, and I actually think it's really good in, in summarizing the, the ethos of our age. Because she basically says, you know, the good news is you get to be whoever you want to be. The terrifying news is you get to be whoever you want to be. You get to craft an identity that is completely up to you. And the terrifying thing is that as you craft that identity, you reject other things. And for every choice you make, there are dozens of choices you are rejecting. But when you're done reinventing yourself and you still aren't happy, then what? 
So whether we admit it or not, there are boundary lines. There are things we don't get to choose. And for most of us, for all of us, uh, when we run into these boundaries, these lack of choices, it can very often make it hard for us to feel content. I know you've struggled with this. You don't like the way you look. You don't like your personality. You're always comparing yourself to other people. Now, contentment isn't easy. These two situations, right? It's hard to be happy when you have so many choices just calling out that they can satisfy you. And it's hard to be happy when you have too few choices and you're stuck. And so how can we find true contentment? This is the setup for our second point. This is Psalm 16. Where is contentment found? I think the pivotal word for our understanding, Psalm 16, is the first word of verse 9. First word of verse 9 is therefore. That's an important word whenever you're reading any kind of text, especially the Bible. Therefores are very important. Uh, Therefore, David says, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. Now, why is this such an important word? The word therefore means because of what I just said, this is the reason why. Because of what I just said, this is the reason, therefore, my heart is glad and my whole body rejoices. And so we have to go back and we have to look at what David has written, especially in verse 8. We need to figure out why his heart is glad. And what does he say? He says, I won the lottery, therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. He doesn't say that. I have the perfect body, therefore, My whole being rejoices. I have the perfect family, therefore my heart is glad. I got my dream job, I got my dream house, therefore my heart is glad. He doesn't say any of that, of course. He doesn't even say, I'm the king, darn it. (laughs) My heart is glad. How? Now what does he say? I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. I have set the Lord always before me. I have set the Lord always before me. Therefore, my heart is glad. My heart, my focus is on the Lord. Psalm 16 is saying, here is where true contentment is found. It's not found in your circumstances. It's found in this closeness with the living God. It's an amazing thought. This is a kind of of contentedness. This is a kind of happiness that only God can give you, right? If the world can give you this kind of contentedness, you know what that means, right? The world can take it away. And that's the problem. And so no matter what you're going through, David will say, if you keep your eyes always on the Lord, your heart can be glad. And so how do you do that? How do you, what does it mean to keep your eyes on the Lord? And so let's scan through this psalm because I think David shows us what it looks like to keep your eyes on the Lord. So look at verse 1 with me. You trust the Lord to keep you safe. God is your security. Uh, That's the first way that we keep our eyes on the Lord. You trust his protection. So David writes, preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. So the diagnostic question for us, of course, is where do you find Security, And I think the places that we ordinarily look for security might be our medical records. Do we have a clean bill of health? There I find my refuge. I think many of us find our refuge in our our retirement portfolios and in our bank accounts. Because as long as we have enough to bail us out of a jam, I have refuge. 
Most of us in this room, not everyone of course, but most of us in this room live in Temecula or Marietta, which means that depending on what list you look at, these are two cities that are always at the top of safest cities in America. Ah, do we find our refuge in that? But remember, if the world gives us our security and our refuge, it can also take them away. If you look for security elsewhere apart from the Lord, it's a shaky foundation. And so the first thing, preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. Secondly, second way we keep our eyes on God. You recognize that God is really all you need. This is verse 2. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. I have no good apart from you. Uh, it's been said many, many times. I think, I think Tim Keller said this. I think others probably have said it. This idea, this concept, what is an idol? And an idol is anything where if you say, if this were taken away, I would be crushed. If you put God in that place, you'll never lose. You'll never be crushed. He's the only thing that can't be taken. Everything else, even your most precious relationships in, in life, are but good gifts from God, the giver. Third thing, gratitude. Look at verse 3 and verse 5. Verse 3 and verse 5. This is a life of gratitude. So we receive life with this open hand. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. Now let me ask you a question. Are all of the saints in the land excellent ones? (laughs) Ah, he's so filled with gratitude. You could probably say for us, you would say, uh, I, I delight in my fellow church people. That maybe makes it hit home a little bit more, doesn't it? I delight in those who sit in these green chairs next to me. They are the excellent ones. Gratitude is a virtue that transforms us. Verse 5, so beautiful, right? The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. Now let's go back to that idea of boundary lines. Boundary lines feel oppressive until we realize God has placed us in them so that we might flourish in him. God, you hold my lot. I think that's liberating. God, you hold my lot. And then jump down to verse 7. This is the bow that ties up the gift here. David would suggest to keep your eyes on the Lord, to have the Lord always before you, is to worship the Lord and to allow him to instruct you. I will bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. And so while this list may not be exhaustive, contentment is found in a life where you're trusting God for your security. You recognize that he is what you need. He is all you need. You live with thankfulness to him, and you worship him and allow him to guide you. There you have it. That's the key to the good life. Get to work. If you want true happiness, what do you need to do? You need to maintain this relationship with God. Amen? Let's pray. Easy enough. No, this is the dilemma of our psalm, isn't it? Because even as Psalm 16 gives us a solution for our quest for happiness, at the same time, it's raising a problem. It is suggesting you will find happiness if you stay laser-focused on God. How has that gone for you? 
King David, of course, is called a man after God's own heart, and even King David could not live up to what he himself wrote in this psalm. I have set the Lord always before me. This is a visual kind of language here, so you could also translate it. My eyes are always on the Lord, but we can think of an event in 2 Samuel where David is on the palace roof, and he would have done a lot better if he kept his eyes on the Lord. But instead he put his eyes on another man's wife. Even David could not follow the prescription for contentness, for happiness that he himself wrote for us in this psalm. Whenever I read through the story of David, this king after God's own heart, I'm always struck with the same exact thought by the time we get to his death in the, in, in the middle of 2 Samuel, which is, I cannot imagine anyone would want his life. It's kind of miserable. And so he can't live up to this psalm. We can't live up to this psalm. And so what in the world are we supposed to do? Well, I would suggest that this psalm is more than a biography of David. And I would suggest it's more than just inspirational for us. Because this is where the New Testament goes. And so when we turn to Acts 2, today, by the way, is is Pentecost Sunday, 50 days since Easter. And we have Peter preaching this, this magnificent Pentecost sermon. And he quotes from Psalm 16 directly. He focuses on verse 10. You will not abandon my soul to Sheol. That's the realm of the dead, the place of the dead, Sheol. You will not abandon my soul to the place of the dead or let your Holy One see corruption. And Peter does an amazing thing here. Peter, the apostle, says, I know that's in the Bible, but it's not true. Because David wrote that line, but David died and he was buried and his body decomposed in the ground. But Peter says David was a prophet. And David knew that God had promised him an oath that he would place one of his sons on his throne. And seeing what was to come, David in Psalm 16 is looking to the resurrection of the Messiah. Because the Messiah was not abandoned to Sheol, nor did his body see decay. God raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of it, Peter says. And so essentially, Psalm 16 is about Jesus. Jesus is the one who kept his eyes always on the Lord. Jesus is the one who refused to run after other gods. Jesus is the one who delighted himself in God and God's people. Jesus is the one who was not abandoned to the realm of the dead. Remember, the women come to the tomb in order to freshen up this body that they presume is decomposing, but his body did not decay. Psalm 16 is about Christ. And maybe you're saying, okay, But I'm still struggling with contentment. That's great. And yet, friends, this is exactly where the gospel meets us. Because there is one who did these things. And the good news is when you turn to Jesus in faith, the joy, the deep, deep joy that Christ received through his relationship with his Father, you know what he does? He shares this joy with you. In John 15, Jesus is teaching his disciples, and as he is teaching them about the kingdom, in verse 11, he explains why he is teaching them. He says, I have told you this so that my joy may be in you. I mean, in many ways, you just have to take a step back and wonder, how how much has the church failed to communicate this message? 
how much has the primary question of the church almost seemed like fire insurance? How do I avoid punishment? How do I avoid God's justice? And Jesus is, is looking at his, his disciples, and he says, you know why I'm teaching you all of this? It's not to make sure that you get into heaven. You're already good. You're in me. It's that I want you to have an abundant life. I want you to experience this joy that I have. I want it to be yours. And so if you will come to me and you will trust in me, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to take my joy rooted in the love of my Father because my eyes are always on him. And I'm going to share that joy with you. Jesus is the only one who could live up to the demands of Psalm 16. And he's the only one who can free us from the bondage of our discontent. All of that false security I give my heart to, Jesus took that to the cross. All of the gods I run after, Jesus took that idolatry and it was poured out over him on the cross. All of that ingratitude and resentment, Jesus says, put it on my shoulders on the cross. He did that to free us. He did that so that we might have our deep contentment knowing that we are in him. The one with perfect joy, the one who lived, died, and rose again, so that that joy might be given to us. And so the secret to contentment is, is not uh, this kind of simple, just quick change of behavior, or I, I just wish I was different in some way. The secret to contentment is knowing who I really am in Christ Jesus. This changes everything because the one who went into the Father's presence found what? He found eternal pleasures without limit at his right hand, and he shares those with me. As we wrap up here, I get this brings up uncomfortable questions. Robert, are you really saying that if I just become a Christian, then, then automatically I will be happy because I, I, I think I'm a Christian and automatically I'm not happy? And of course the answer is no. We struggle with heartbreak, we struggle with discouragement, we have indwelling sin, right, that still we have to struggle against, through the whole, and the Holy Spirit is, is sanctifying against this indwelling sin. We struggle with depression and anxiety, often for very physiological reasons. We will go through profoundly hard times. But remember in Philippians 4, the Apostle Paul says that he had to, he had to learn contentment. It's not readily apparent. It's something that you have to learn. And so, friends, I'm not saying you can be perfectly happy right now. I would probably argue that we will never be perfectly happy this side of glory. But I think I can say, and I hear this word with you, I think we can be a lot happier than we are now. I think that is held out for us. Because Jesus is yours and Jesus is mine. And he wants to share his joy with you. You can have so much more joy. I can have so much more joy than I have now simply because we have Jesus. You can have much more deeply uh, satisfied life no matter what's going on because we have him. So the question is, do you want more of the joy of the Lord in your life? Would you like a greater measure of Christ's joy in your life? If your answer to that question is yes, would you know? Would you believe that he loves you so much that he's offering that to you? That's a good word. Let's pray.
Lord, we are, we are so grateful that as we look at this prescription of, of the good life that we see in Psalm 16, in many ways a prescription that, that stands over us and, and condemns us, Lord, we don't receive that as bad news covered in the righteous robes of Jesus. That we see those as, as the path of life. We, we see the, the, the beauty and the, the goodness and the truthfulness of putting our security and, and being filled with gratitude and fleeing idols and, and fixing our gaze on you. Of, of course, that's the good life. And yet, Lord, we fail to do it. And so would that failure to do it not drive us into despair, which is further away from the presence of God? But would it drive us to, to Jesus? The one in whom this psalm proclaims. We've not heard it rightly unless we have heard this song sung loudest from the lips of Jesus. Sung not just for himself, but sung over us. Reminded as he taught his disciples that he's teaching them these things so that his joy might be in them, that his joy might be in us. Lord, captivate us this morning. Grab hold of our hearts this morning. Don't let this leave us, but instead would we fix our eyes on Jesus, our perfect mediator? Would we fix our eyes on Jesus uh, in whom there are, there are pleasures forevermore? Holy Spirit, seal this word into our hearts. Transform us by your word and spirit. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.